All right, so I was so thankful about one thing, and that is this morning, or, or yes, Saturday morning, I woke to find my book on the front porch. I was so happy. I have, I own this book and loaned it out to somebody, I don't know who, and it never came back, so I went online and ordered a new one. This one's a hardbound. My other one was paper, so very interesting, but same book, and guess what? The same story was in it, so I was really happy because... I, now, the first time I read this particular story, and this was many year, quite a few years ago, I'm not sure if it was maybe 15 or more years ago, it was back when Saddam Hussein was still in power. Do you guys remember those days? How was that? It was something like the 1990s-ish to 2000-ish, somewhere in there where he rose up into power. It might have been longer ago. I'm not, my history on him is not real specific. But I know that I came to this church shortly after 2000. And so that would have been when I first probably read this to you all. The other thing that was going on in my life at that time was I had my son Eric serving in the Navy. He was very young, right out of um, uh, right out of high school. He was on the USS Kitty Hawk, and he was stationed out of Yokosuka, Japan. Yokosuka, is that how I pronounce it? Okay, check the expert. <laughs> and um, anyway, so he had sent me a photo that had been taken of um, a soldier after Saddam Hussein had been taken down. They had invaded his palace quarters and all the, the things in that area. And there was a photo taken of a soldier who was sitting on a long couch and there was a coffee table in front of it, very large, massive couch. I mean, this guy looked like a petite little nothing, and you know he wasn't, on this huge couch. And on the wall behind him was this, this almost wall-sized portrait. Uh, on one side was Nebuchadnezzar and the backdrop of the, the is it called ziggurat? Is that how it's pronounced? And it, on the other side of the portrait facing him was Saddam Hussein. And Nebuchadnezzar was handing him a branch of authority, the, passing the baton of leadership onto him. So that's kind of the world in which, when I first read this story, uh, this book came into my hands. And so my son had just sent me this photograph, and I've lost the photo, of course, it's with the book. I'm so sad because it was a really cool photo. But, um, and it might be somewhere on my computer if I dig really hard, I might be able to find it. But he, um, when that occurred and I was studying Daniel for the first time, and because the work that what we're doing here in Daniel is a preparation for the end times, right? We know that Babylon holds a, a huge place in the storyline of what's going to happen in those end time days. And so all that being my context for when I got this book, and I read it for the first time, but even still, I read it back through again last night, and I went, you know what, this is still relevant today, even though we now know all about what happened to Saddam Hussein, right? He's, he's a done deal. But this storyline is really interesting. It's going to take me a few pages to read. It's not too many, like five or six pages, but I do want to read it because I do think it just kind of sets your mind in a kind of grabbing the picture of the, the city of Babylon and the, the geopolitical affairs that go on and the rising up and the putting down of kings and kingdoms. And it just kind of draws you into the uh, picture of what might 
uh, fall upon us at some point, and we know will happen for the city of Babylon at, at some point. So I'm going to read out of this book. It's called The Rise of Babylon, Charles H. Dyer. And I've read this before. For some of you guys have heard this before because you were with me before, but I'm going to read it anyway. You'll love it still. Okay, here, this reporter... Um, says this, he says, the dry blistering heat was oppressive and the last thing I wanted to do was hike along a sandy road and scale a dusty wall. But I had traveled from my home in Texas to Babylon, Iraq, and now that I was here, nothing short of an armed guard <laughs> would stop me from exploring the ruined city that has always fascinated me. I bet an armed guard would stop him, right? Finally, I was alone for the moment in a city that was nearly as old as civilization itself. Perhaps I was standing a few feet from the spot where, where Alexander the Great died or where Nebuchadnezzar once mustered over the greatness of the city he had built. Remember on the tower wall, this great city which I have built with my own hands, right? Maybe the young prisoner Daniel had absently run his fingers along this very wall and wished that he were back home in Jerusalem. Or perhaps somewhere in the sand under my feet was a fragment of the symbol of man's rebellion against God, the Tower of Babel. I snapped several pictures of this bleak, undeveloped section of ruins, and then I slipped back over the wall to join the official party of foreigners of which I was a part. Saddam Hussein had invited us to Iraq for a cultural festival to see the beauty of the new Babylon that was rising from the ruins. Like the other visitors, I clapped and smiled for my host at the appropriate times. But something arose from within my soul, a feeling part thrill, part chill. The Bible forecast the rebuilding of Babylon, and here, before my eyes, was another thrilling proof that Bible prophecies are infallible. But the Bible also reveals that the rebuilt Babylon will be brutally and suddenly destroyed with such force that not, not even one stone will ever be used again. I looked down at the Babylonian ruins and saw 2,500-year-old bricks that were ordered into place by Nebuchadnezzar. Over the centuries, thousands of his bricks have been taken out of the rubble and used to build nearby villages. Today, the rebuilders of Babylon are laying additional bricks inscribed, rebuilt in the era of our president, Saddam Hussein. So during his tenure as president there, he was actually in the works of rebuilding Babylon, which explains to you why the photo that I said was of this man relaxing, taking a little nap in front of this huge portrait where the baton of power was being passed this is the vision that Saddam Hussein had of himself, that he was the next great world power that was being raised up. That's how he saw himself. These bricks, too, should last through the ages. What act of destruction could prevent their reuse? Nuclear war, perhaps? But the Cold War is a fading memory. The United States and other civilized nations of the world have never been more eager for peace and disarmament. When my eyes fell upon a chilling 20-foot portrait of Saddam Hussein, the self-described knight of the Arab world, a man whom some call the butcher of Baghdad. What does the future hold for Babylon, I wondered. Whatever terrors lie ahead, they are sure to affect the entire world. Extra, extra, read all about it. Madman from Mesopotamia threatens the stability of the Middle East. World prepares for war. 
Are these headlines from today's New York Times, or are they the cries of a prophet who lived 2,500 years ago? History, it seems, is repeating itself. Descriptions of Iraq's threat to world peace today paralyzed, uh, parallel descriptions of Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power in 605 BC. Once again, the eyes of the world are riveted on the Middle East and the threat of one man. Once again, the world is painfully aware of Babylon. At the heart of the current crisis is Saddam Hussein, president of Iraq, well known for atrocities, tortures, and ruthlessness. He seems bizarre and unreasonable to Western minds. What are his plans and ambitions? What relationship do his actions have with biblical prophecies and God's plan for the world? Is Saddam Hussein a link to Armageddon, or is he only the latest bead on a long string of would-be world conquerors? Hussein has baffled both his own countrymen and Western foreign policy analysts. While the world struggle, struggles to penetrate the enigma of Saddam Hussein, we can find an important God-given clue in the Bible. The key to the mystery of Saddam Hussein is Babylon. From Genesis to Revelation, Babylon occupies a unique position in God's world. Today, once dead city is being riveted by Saddam Hussein, who seeks to establish and lead an international power paralleling the glory of ancient Babylon. Now, I'm going to, the next part of this is going to describe to you um, an event that took place it, before the very eyes of this author. And what I think it does is it displays the the reality of all these possibilities of what is going to happen in the end time. So listen carefully to this part. He says, It's a cloudless September summer night, and the moon casts its shining image on the banks of the gentle Euphrates River. Thousands of guests and dignitaries walk by torchlight to Babylon's procession street and enter the city from the north. Instructed to line the streets along the massive walls, the guests obediently follow orders. When the audience is in place, the dark-eyed man in charge nods, and the procession begins. Rows and rows of soldiers parade in, dressed in Babylonian tunics and carrying swords, spears, and shields. Interspersed among the ranks of soldiers are groups of musicians playing harps, horns, and drums. Clusters of children carrying palm branches and runners bear bowls of incense. Then come soldiers and still more soldiers in a seemingly endless line of men and weapons. After the procession, the guests attend a ceremony playing tribute to Ishtar, the mother goddess of Babylon. Have I just described a scene of pagan worship from the time of Daniel? Perhaps, but it's also exactly what I witnessed when I returned to Babylon a second time to attend the International Babylon Festival held under the patron of S Saddam Hussein. Imagine, if you will, a ruler determined to stamp his name on the pages of history. His goal is complete dominion of all surrounding nations. Now, this is something we hear about through the Islamic uh, rhetoric on a on a regular basis and it's never ceased from being that one thing their goal is total dominion total uh, rulership over all his goal is complete dominion of all surrounding nations he has spent vast sums of money to outfit an army capable of carrying out his wishes he holds absolute power and he does not hesitate to execute those who pose even a remote threat to his leadership
People have been arrested and imprisoned for the simple crime of not revering his image. Yet his military might is not his only claim to fame. He also sees himself as a patron of culture, of poets, of artists, and of architects. Even the bricks in Babylon bear his name as the personal overseer of its construction. Is this a fair description of Saddam Hussein? Yes, but it also accurately describes Nebuchadnezzar II. The Babylonian king whose empire once stretched from sea to sea. In his day, the lands of what are now Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Kuwait were all under Babylonian control. In August 1990, Saddam Hussein tried to reclaim a portion of that early empire when he invaded Iraq. You all remember that? Okay, yeah, Kuwait. I'm sorry, Kuwait. Thank you. Good correction. Good job. <laughs> I just read it wrong. <laughs> a coalition of nations led by the United States pushed back the Iraqi army, but Hussein remained in control of Iraq. Could he still ever hope to reclaim the entire kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar? Now I'm going to read to you some excerpts of uh, various newspaper uh, writers and reporters that had some interesting um, input, I guess, at that time. He says, um, this one is a Babylonian chief archaeologist named uh, Shafrak Muhammad Jafar. He says, because Babylon was built in ancient times and was a great city, it must be a great city again in the time of our new great leader, Saddam Hussein. So we talked earlier about paying people to say nice things. I'm just wondering. <laughs> then another one here is interesting. It says Babylon will be a great city again. The Bible mentions Babylon over 280 times. And many of those references are to the future city of Babylon that is rising from the fine sands of the desert today. Consider this following biblical prophecy. This is out of Isaiah 13. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Babylon has never suddenly was never suddenly overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah in their fiery destruction. It was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and it fell into decline, but it was not violently destroyed. An or now another one in Isaiah says an oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw, and then he he goes further down into the text into verse six. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near; it will come like destruction from the Almighty. So when it's, when the prophetic word is given to us about it being destroyed in a completely devastating way, is speaking of those in times, right? The day of the Lord described by Isaiah refers to the tribulation period that is to come. Babylon's destruction then will come in the time of tribulation, a short period of time just before the second coming of Christ. Isaiah 14 says this, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again he will choose Israel, will settle them in their own land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended, all the lands are at rest and at peace, they break into singing. 
When Babylon is ultimately destroyed, Israel will finally be at peace and will dwell in safety. Israel has been a nation again since 1948, but not for one day has the nation of Israel known real peace or ease. It has never been able to claim all the lands God promised the Israelites and, the, and Israeli Arabs' neighbors have been a constant threat and danger. Very interesting. Kind of sets the mood, doesn't it, for where we're heading. Dan, the study of Daniel is, is the, historically, they call it, like it's like the skeletal frame of, hist, of history. And from it, once it's established for you, then you can go into the book of Revelation and plug in the details and they will make sense. But without Daniel, you are left with a with a big hole of understanding in prophetic uh, uh, end time events. So what we're doing here in our Daniel study is absolutely essential for us to understand what we're going to get into in, in time when we move into the book of Revelation. And as we look today then at Babylon and the events that were taking place during the day of Daniel, we are really kind of getting, in many ways, a foretaste of some of the things that will happen yet once again. It seems like there's nothing new under heaven, right? We hear that over and over. It seems like these things happen over and over in history, and people like Saddam Hussein rise up. And in this case, I mean, when it was occurring, we all were saying, hmm, I wonder, do you guys remember this? I wonder, I wonder. But as we have now seen, it wasn't him. And he's now fallen, but we we do keep our eyes on the end. Why? Because every word of God is true, and these things which he has prophesied will be accomplished. Okay, so that gives us, a, I think, a foundation. You're welcome. <laughs> and my reading, yes. <laughs> All right, I actually got through it without uh, totally messing it up. Okay, now, listen, what I want to do to get us started on what we're going to discuss here is step back to, as a very brief review, and I'm not going to go over all the stuff we looked at last week, or the last two weeks was a lot, but I did leave you guys last week with one, one job to do, and that was to go back through your uh, at-a-glance chart, right, the chart that we developed last week, correct? And I said, now I want you to go back with this much before you, and I want you to evaluate reading through the through the texts of Daniel again and try to come up with some key verses that will help to crystallize the author's purpose for writing, right? And the way that you do that in inductive Bible study is your determination is guided. What gives you your objective observation for coming to that is your key words. Which, so that's why in, in your first two weeks of homework, doing the, marking those key words, right, and figuring out exactly what's flowing, not in an individual chapter, but in the book on the whole, knowing that what, what that key message is, is determined for you by looking at your, your key words, okay? So key words lead you to your themes, right? And your theme gives you your title. Does that make sense? It's a progressive thing. You have to start by <laughs> this huge, massive amount of work of looking kind of at everything. You have to do it in a, in a very um, objective way where you stay high. Don't go into too many de details. We didn't, at that time, we didn't want to know all the details about what happened to Daniel in chapter 1. But we're going to look at those this week. But at that time, we didn't need that. We needed to stay high and say, what's going on? So you tell me. 
just as review, what were your keywords for the book on the whole? If they just pop to your mind, they should. There you go. Kings, kingdoms, visions, and dreams. Those are, quite honestly, kings, kingdoms, visions, and dreams are probably the most important of the words which give you your subject matters, right? Because we see all about different kings and different kingdoms rising and falling in this book, and we see the names of all these kings. Although the names change, the consistent theme in there, it's all about these kings and these kingdoms, starting in chapter 1 of, of Daniel, where it shows the the putting down of one kingdom and then being taken captive into the land of another, right? All right, Th that's your some of your subject matters. Now, what about your personages? What in the book of Daniel seems to be the major focus? The Most High God. Okay, so with those two things, those basic, it's four words, but it's one major personage. So concerning God Most High... Now, we've got that figured out. We need to just say, what is it that Daniel's trying to show us about God Most High, right? So tell me, some. what are some of the things that you came up with? I don't think I, maybe I won't bother writing it on the board. How about that? So that we don't mess up where I need to be in a minute here. But you tell me, give me some, some ideas, some thoughts. You should have done this. Yes, he does. Okay, now what we're trying to do is come up with a title for the book of Daniel. Okay? So knowing that God Most High is portraying himself in, in a manner where you say he's in control, right? Or he's sovereign might be another way of saying it, right? All right? Martha. I like that one. So God Most High is the ruler over mankind, and he bestows it upon whom he chooses. I love that because that really kind of drives it home. Now, it's a long title, but it's a good start. 432, okay? Okay, yes, and it says there, Wow, I like that lowliest of men part because that, that kind of helps people who don't necessarily start out in big places, right? Isn't it amazing how God truly does shame the wise by picking the foolish in the world in the, in the way that he does things? Often he raises up into leadership and into powers of position people that other people wouldn't have even given a second thought to, right? Okay, so 417, God most high... Uh, rules and reigns, right, over the realm of mankind. Is that is that kind of what you got on yours, Kathy? Close? Okay, for a title. Okay, that's a second possibility. I hope you're writing these down because these will give you some things to go look at. All right, what else? Did everybody go back and title their their book like I asked? It was actually supposed to have been completed by your, the close of your homework last week. And we just didn't have time to discuss it last week. So if you have not done that yet, this is like really important. Tell me why you think it's important. Why must you know what your author's purpose is? It's going to give you a picture of the environment 
Very good. So your title is has an effect on everything else that you're looking at, each of the other individual chapters, okay? So, okay. Anyone else? Remember that your, your subjects reveal to you themes, and your theme will give you your focus, correct? So once you determine what your focus is, then when you go into each individual chapter, you're going to be able to understand from that perspective that you set, that again, remember we talked about standard, what the standard, setting, setting the standard of, set, okay. So once you have a standard or context set, then you say, okay, this is the context. Daniel is conveying this to us. This is what God Most High wants us to know in this book. This is why this book was written. Now when I go to chapter one, I can say, so how does he accomplish that in chapter one? Are you following me? So when you get into chapter one, you need to see the relationship between what you see going on in one, how does it accomplish what you have determined is your book theme? So if you've decided that your book theme is that God Most High does his will in heaven and earth, then you go into chapter one and you come up with the title for that chapter, it needs to relate to that. How does it accomplish that goal? And if you haven't got that connection, you're off a little bit. You need to go back and rework what you seem to think is the focus. Because here's what can happen. When you go into your individual chapter observations, it's very easy for you personally to pick something out that you just kind of gives you a warm fuzzy. You know, it's a subject matter of compassion or uh, the subject of, uh, um, um, what is the right word, um, Daniel's determination to not become defiled, right? All of a sudden you think it's all about that. It's just about Daniel not being defiled. Does that, does that have anything to do with showing you how God most high rules and reigns over the affairs of man? No. So guess what? Your title is off if that's what you did. And so you're, there's always a relationship between your chapter and your theme. So your theme has to be established so that as you work from chapter one to chapter two, you're making sure you're staying on the target of your standard. This is your context. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Yes. Yes, ma'am. That's exactly right, Kristen. So every time you move from one chapter to the next chapter, when we move next week into next chapter, we need to look at that and say, how does God accomplish his purpose for writing in chapter two? And that should be your title of chapter two. When you get to three, you say, what in this story reveals what God is trying to convey to us about himself in the book on the whole? Otherwise, you can get, you can, be, we're all guilty of this. We have presuppositions we bring to our table always. And we, all of us, have got kind of little warm, fuzzy buttons in us. There's certain subject matters. If you're an evangelist, you just run to the evangelism, right? <laughs> and, if, and if you're a mercy person, you go right into the compassion and love and the, the soft, fuzzy things, right? So you can't help it because that's how we are. But through the inductive process they give you disciplines and these disciplines say this once you've set your context then you develop your theme once you have your theme for the book then each chapter should be re somehow related to what your chapter is your book chapter title is 
okay? So when your book is titled, you have to relate your chapter information to it, okay? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now, did she, did Amanda hit all the right trigger words? She talked about Daniel. She talked about Most High God. She talked about how the so seems like you mentioned the the sovereignty of God. How the kingdoms glorify Him. What do you think? How the kingdoms glorify God. Is you think that's what Daniel's purpose was in writing? How the kingdoms glorify God. It's really not, it's really not about Daniel. It's about God who reveals and reigns. Yeah. We can see that in every, in every scenario. Yeah. Okay, that was going to be my next question is, you know, when you're t torn between is it about God or is it about Daniel, then you have to say why is how is Daniel used in the message line of the book of Daniel on the whole? Does he rise to the top as the most important, or does he is he a support, a character support to what is most important? He is a character support. So Daniel's story is told in order to tell whose story? God's story. So that can help you narrow your... So Although you've got a really good start on that, I would I would narrow it where the focus is more about the Most High God, and what is He conveying about Himself through Daniel? Just flip it and skip the last part. If you want to cut it down, just skip the part about Daniel, even because even though Daniel seems important in this book, and he is, but he's simply the vessel through which God uses. He's the tool in God's hand to show humanity who he is. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, when I looked in my pad, God made, knows, and is in charge of everything. I love that. <laughs> that sounds like a word definition. I like that. It's, it, that's very good. Now, what I would suggest is now that you crystallize that much in your mind about it seems like these are the characteristics about God that he's trying to convey. Now you read through the book of Daniel on the whole, just kind of read through the whole thing, and every time you come across a verse that seems to, to edify what you're trying to say and crystallize it in it through the words of that what are actually written, anytime you title, you should try to use the exact words out of the text and then use a scripture verse as a street address. That's your that's your point of validating that you've picked the right thing because if it's your words it's probably going to be skewed some in some way or another but if you can use God's word then your target is straight on because it's what God said that matters not how we feel about it and our interpretation of it right um, it's really easy for us to to translate what God says into our own way of thinking, our own speech, our own pattern of speech. But when you're trying to discipline yourself to learn inductive methods, what you're trying to do is get on board with God, not God to get on board with you. Does that make sense? So you got a great beginning. I like every single thing that you said. Now find a verse that says that. And puts, put it in the words of the, the written word of God and give a street address. 
what chapter? Is it chapter 2? Is it chapter 4? Is it chapter 9? Is it chapter, what chapter are you finding in it that conveys that? Okay? Okay. Yes. Helda. Yeah, no, go right ahead. Okay. Now that's for chapter one, correct? Mm -hmm. We're talking about the book title. The whole book of Daniel, how are you going to title it? Okay, that's where you got lost. Yes. is he is important he shows what is important about God and who God is so what does that tell you about what the major theme is in the book is it about Daniel or is it about God okay okay so I think we've have we all pretty much come to that understanding at this point this really essential in this book because it's all through his story that we're going to look at as a matter of fact that these things are are demonstrated and displayed for us but he's the tool in God's hand he's not the major subject God most high is right yes that's a really good point to bring up, Kristen, in the in the the context of this conversation, because when you hit chapter nine, he's not even, or chapter four, he's not even mentioned. And so, if he was the book, why isn't he in that chapter? But that chapter does convey some convey something to us about who, about God Most High, right? Okay, good. All right. Well, I'm going to get. I came up with just for. Uh, for consideration. One is after uh, in chapter 2. Somebody open up chapter 2 and read for me verses 20 and 21. And um, Sandy, you might find something in this particular area that kind of targets pretty well all the things that you mentioned. 20 and 21. Who wants to read that for me? Thank you, Rebecca. Chapter 2, verse 20. Okay. That's okay. I knew that wasn't right, but. Yes. Wow. Sandy, does that one hit kind of right where you landed on all those descriptive things that you gave? I, I think it really does. So you might find a title in chapter two, um, and you can, you can, you know, you do need to hone it down so it's not, you, you can't, don't want to use two whole verses for a title. You know, you want to kind of crystallize it. But at least now you're kind of in an area that hits all the things that you po pointed out as being uh, essential. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I want to show you in that right now is, did you notice how ver verse 20 focuses in on how he, re how he reveals things to men, right? 
We talked about that, that there are two things that seem to be going on in this book. Martha brought it up, kings and kingdoms, and then visions and understanding of them, right? So in, in chapter 2, verse 20, he covers all about how he reveals things to men, how he gives wisdom to wise men, right? Then in the next verse, he covers all about how he raises up kings and puts kings down. So in a way, that one chapter and those two verses cover the totality of everything that's kind of going on in the book of Daniel on the whole. Um, my title on that was uh, God Most High Rules and Reveals, or you could say Reveals and Rules, because that would be the order 20 and then 21. Um, another might be even most... God Most High removes kings and establishes kings, but the, the weakness in that second thought is it doesn't talk anything about how he's revealing these things to man. How essential do you think that particular subject matter is, is to you and I as followers of God Most High? Yeah, and how is that significant or, or important, do you think, to the overall message of Daniel and then to take it down into our personal lives? How important is that to you and I? Sure. How important is prophetic words from God and the, the, the fulfillment of them in uh, your ability to... Um, affirm who God actually is. It does. And how does it build your faith? Why? There you go. He says it and then he does it. And by the way, what God is there in all of re the religions that we're familiar with where God predicts something even hundreds or thousands of years ahead and then fulfills it. Think about Israel, the nation. We just read in the book here on uh, the rise of Babylon about how it talked about 1948, Israel became reestablished as a nation. How long had it been not a nation? For like a thousand years, which gave rise within Christendom a false teaching that there was this uh, replacement of the church with Israel, the nation, right? Um, so the danger in that was what had man in religiosity done concerning what God had said concerning Israel, his nation? What did they, how did they fail? There you go. God gave a prophecy. He said, this is what I'm going to do. Did you remember when I also just read in here what he said about Babylon? What Isaiah has said about Babylon? What God is going to do in Babylon in that day? Now, we look around our world, even yet today, even though Saddam Hussein came in, he was a flash in the pan, right? But at the time, it felt real. And it was a little bit unnerving to kind of sit through it and see what was going to transpire. And then suddenly he's gone. Nebuchadnezzar came and went. So did Saddam Hussein, right? But yet God's word endures forever. And what God says he will do, he does do. So he has made a prophetic utterance concerning Babylon. He's made a, a, a prophetic utterance to you and I concerning Israel. These prophetic utterances for you and I as we see things coming true, these just absolutely affirm our faith and our trust in God. We know that God says and he does. And so we can believe him.
Isn't that amazing? This, this study is one of my absolute favorites. Okay, we're done with that. We did that pretty quickly. Let's move on now. So now we're digging into this week's homework, and we are not going to get through all my notes. I can guarantee it. But I will do my very best to try to hit on the highlights at least, and hopefully we can we can get as much done here as we can. Let's start with, um, if we consider our theme that God rules and reigns over the realm of mankind, as we're looking at this, or that he, he both rules and reveals, right? In chapter one, we don't see a lot of revealing. However, we see it if we understand the historical background, don't we? Okay, so it's very interesting because Jeremiah made a prophetic utterance, had he not? It was a shorter-term prophetic utterance, but he told Israel what was going to happen. When you go, when we went all the way back into um, Deuteronomy and we looked at God when he established his covenant with God's people and he said, uh, this is what I'll do, this is what you're to do, and he says, and if you don't, this is what I'm going to do, and here it is, it's happening. So in a, in a what do you call it, a subliminal message in here is God has spoken and now he's fulfilling. In Daniel 1. So God is fulfilling exactly what he said. Let's go and look at Israel then. Let's look at their historical background. Okay, their historical background. Now, this was Deuteronomy 28 and 29 that you looked at. Okay. That was uh, day two. Basically, I'm going to cover day two and three right now. We're, so we're jumping ahead. We'll go back and look at a little bit of the things that we did in one later. Okay. So what happened in Deuteronomy 28? What did you learn about God's relationship with Israel at that point? What took place in Deuteronomy 28? Come on. Yeah, he basically the in, the Israelites were entering into a covenant with God, were they not? So in 28 of or, or 28 and in the first part of 29, what you see God doing is laying down the parameters of a covenant, correct? Um, so what we see is Israel entered a covenant. It was a covenant um, with God. Now, describe that. Were there any conditions? Yes, so it's conditional. And he says, do what? Obey. And what's going to happen? Blessing. And if you disobey, cursing. That's kind of a hard concept for some people. They have a hard time believing that God would curse, right? But, but the concept here is that, that if you're in, a co in covenant with God, then what is this telling us about those covenants? Uh, say it again. They're important, They're important and if, you're, if there's going to be a consequence for breaking, what is it telling you? <laughs> oh, yeah, don't break it because... So, so what is it that you learn about God in this picture here? What characteristics and qualities about God do you 
are, you, are showing are being shown to us here. He keeps his word. He honors his word. And if he said, I'll bless you, what? He will bless you. But you have to do what? Obey. Obey. So what does that tell us about our relationship with God in a covenant? Do you get to ride free? Do you get to skirt along? Do you get to say, well, God's so gracious and loving and kind. He'll always forgive me. Well, is that true? Yes. However, does it also convey to us something else? What's that? responsibility there is a responsibility that is one of the most fundamental things that you learn when you do the covenant study through precept is that in covenant you have a responsibility to your covenant partner now the interesting thing that I just really want to bring up and it's totally not really related to what we're doing but I don't want to confuse anyone this covenant was made between God and whom Israel who the nation this is a national covenant, not an individual covenant. I want you to catch hold of that really carefully because there's a very distinct difference between a personal covenant like we have in the new covenant with Jesus Christ where it's between me and the Lord and this covenant here which was between God uh, Most High and a national group of people, a people group. So as a group of people, as a um, congregational covenant so to speak then God says look you as as my nation must obey and I will bless you or if you as a nation display disobedience I am going to curse curse what the nation yes it is the law so it's conditional it came with the law right and what do we know is the purpose for the law in the New Testament what do we know about that it reveals to us who uh, the sin that we have right if we if God says these are the things that you should do this is what is righteous and when you disobey it's unrighteous then you can see every time you make a make a move where you disobey God it reveals to you how much of a sinner you actually are right so it's it's a the uh, the New Testament says it's a tutor that it can lead you to Christ, right? But it definitely reveals that you have need of Christ, that you have need of a Savior. Yes. Now, how did God's people's nation then become captives here in Daniel 1? What happened? We looked at those verses that she gave us on the three sieges of Israel and within those pages of work and I'm going to show you something that I did so I think this will be helpful I I gave my husband cheat sheets last night and he went oh, these are so much better <laughs> and so I thought you know maybe I should just point this out to the class and I think those of you who've been with me have seen this before but those of you who haven't okay where are my where are my notes here? Did I already take them out? No. I'm going to look. Yes, you can. Yes. Okay, so now I can't find my 
Oh, it's right here. I already had it out. Thank you. Okay, so what is happening in, so our historical backdrop to this then is they had entered into this covenant. It was conditional. Obey, be blessed, disobey, be cursed. And what did Israel do? Israel disobeyed. And, yes, and that's Jeremiah, you said 25? 8 to 11. Okay. And that was one of the references that you were given. Now, let me just tell you what to do. From now on, if you ever have a multitude of things where she's asking you to kind of put things together in this way, where it's like almost overwhelming, because you... I saw my husband struggling with this. He was flipping from one page and flipping back to the other, and it, it became, and also it was hard to keep track of things. And then she'd ask the next question. You have to go back to that same chapter you just were in, right? So this is what I like to do. I, I did a, a cut and paste, and I did three columns. And I know for those who've been with me, you know this. But for the rest of you, this is something that will be a tool that's helpful. All I did was copy and paste each of the verses into these three columns. She, thank you for Precept Ministries. They told you the verses that relate to the first siege, the second siege, and the third siege, right? So you can see at the top of my columns, I put on here first siege, second siege, third siege, right, is my titles. And then underneath, I put the verses, I just cut and pasted into the column underneath uh, the information about them. Then what I had when I was done is three sheets of paper that I could put out before me. I didn't have to flip my pages to my Bible anymore. Everything was right there. And I could even color code, as you can see, which I did. Like, I put blocks of yellow and blocks of pink and things that related to it. And as I marked sin, which gave me all my answers to why did Israel end up where, where they are in Daniel 1? Because of their sin. And what you see by looking at all these verses is over and over again they did this. God says, I, I sent my prophets to you, and I told you over and over, I warned you. And what's interesting to me is even on the whole concerning um, how God went about, the very, the very outline of this, how many sieges? Three. Did we determine how, how long these things took to accomplish? Did you notice? Judah's three sieges. Let's, look, let's put this up here. The first siege was Nebuchadnezzar's, which year of his service, of his kingship? Go to, go to 25.1 in Jeremiah. Do you see it? And his first year, Neb's first year of reign. Correct? The second one, it's in his eighth year. So we've got Neb's. Eighth year. And then the third one? That's right, Neb's 19th year. So how many years did it take God to finally bring everything down on the heads of Judah? A total of 18, 19 years, right? So would you say that this was, what, what do you think this is conveying to us about God? And along the way, were there other prophetic words given to Israel? How, how many times? Who else went back besides Jeremiah? Who else went to Israel and, and were, was telling them, look, you're sinning. You're, you're committing acts of abomination. You're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. You're, you know, 
How many times they did that? Who was who besides Jeremiah did this? Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, by the way, who went into the first? Um, who was taken captive in this first siege? Daniel, and who else? According to even Daniel chapter one, we see it's also who. Yeah, and all the royalties, right? Those of the court of the king and so forth. So that's who was in that first one. I'm going to put um, Jeremiah 25.1 here for you. Well, it's not completely decisive on that, but I would say that basically, remember what happened when they went in that first siege. Go ahead, Kathleen. I can see you're wanting to say it. Okay. Good. Right. Isn't that interesting? So it's a progressive um, infliction of God's judgment, correct? And along this way, if we had both Jeremiah and Ezekiel so far that we know of, and there were probably others, um, if, if this was a progression, there was a lack of, in, in that first case, seven, eight years between the first siege and the second one, and then another 10 years from the second to the third, what does it seem like God is doing? Yeah, he's saying second chance. Do you think this might be three chances and you're out, might have come from three strikes and you're out? Right now, you could, you will give you a first chance. I'll give you a second chance, but you know that third chance, you're done. So, so it seems to me like, what are you seeing about God in this then? Wow, is he long suffering or patient or what? I mean, it's like he's on your side, guys. He wants you to succeed. He's not out to trip you up or to or to hope you fall on your face. He desires so much for you to walk in right relationship with him. And so he seems to be giving them chance after chance. And as you read through all those cross-references that you look, you saw over and over how either individual kings... It says, like, for him, for instance, Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim, right, that he, he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So how did they get into the place Israel disobeyed? And specifically, we see here in uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 5, it says that Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So he was the spiritual, he was both a spiritual leader but a political leader for Israel, the nation, yes? That was their job. And as that leader, he did what? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what is God's covenant with? Was it with an individual, Jehoiakim only? No, it's with his nation. And he is in what position concerning that nation? He was the leader, the ruler. So if he's the ruler or the leader of the people and the people are going to be following his example, right, then what God is saying here, I'm going to let the people know through my written word what he did was evil in my sight. So do you guys remember, for those of you who were doing the kings and prophets with me, Right, we just kind of did. What was it that God did every time a king uh, completed his tenure of ruling? Yeah, did told you. What were the two possible uh, verdicts of these people, these rulers? 
Yeah, he did evil in the sight of the Lord or he did right in the sight of the Lord. Those were the two things. And you know what's very interesting to me is when you think back on the ones who did right, and and we didn't look at David when we did that, but let's use him because he's such a commonly known one for all of you. Um, David did right in the eyes of the Lord. We, We know over and over he had a heart. Right, that God says he had, he was he had a heart after my a man of after my own heart. Thank you. So since we know he did right in the sight of the Lord, and for David's sake, often is mentioned as we did those studies. Individually, as a person, was David perfect? No. And yet, what did God deem his his rulership era? that he did right in the sight of the Lord. So isn't that interesting that a ruler of a nation, now we can kind of make some application to that today, don't you think? You can have a ruler over your nation who as an individual person may have many flaws in their character and they may not handle all the affairs of their life in a, in a perfect way that we would consider, quote, sinless, Right? And yet, what is he doing for his nation? Is he doing righteousness in the sight of the Lord? The other one that we found so interesting was Solomon, who everybody thinks was this wonderful king. And at the end of his reign, it said Solomon did evil in the sight of the Yes, and in the progression of what we've looked at this week, one of the things that Kay had us go back and look at was with when Israel as a whole started crumbling and God began to inflict these cursings upon the nation, one of the first things happened was a division within Israel itself, right? And the northern kingdoms, those ten, ten tribes, what happened to them? They went away earlier. Now, what caused that division in the nation? Do you remember? Right. Well, that's what happened after the division. But what was the progression that led up to that? Who had done evil in the eyes of the Lord that caused God to to divide? Yes, Solomon, which is what you just brought up. Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so God implemented a uh, a disciplinary movement on his part and he said I'm going to remove 10 portions of your kingdom from your hand and I'm going to give it to another now two portions remain within the house of Solomon right of David but the other 10 went to the north and that was the beginning of this of the divided kingdom of Israel and it was why because Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, he wasn't the first. <laughs> we saw Saul before that, where God literally took the kingship from him. Then we saw David come in, and God made covenant with David and promised that he would ha- always have someone upon the throne. And these there are prophetic uh, inferences that speak to the coming of the king of kings, Jesus, right, through the bloodline of David. But God began this disciplinary measure that we see here going on in these three sieges because of the leadership of the nation did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what about the nation? Individually, what was going on? We know that ultimately the king is the one who God was looking at to say, did you do right or did you do wrong? Sometimes the king can do right and the people aren't following, right? 
I remember one of the kings, he kept going back and destroying the high places, and then he, as soon as he left, the people would rebuild him, and he'd have to go back and put him back down again, right? So he was trying his best, <laughs> right? Um, yes. Yes, basically they were following. And some of them weren't even being necessarily motivated by the king himself. They themselves were making these choices to follow after the gods of the land, right? And therefore, within the nation who is responsible to God in this covenant, the nation is on the whole, are all the individuals. So it's really an interesting thing, a dynamic that you got, you do have to kind of watch for and pay attention to as you're observing things and try to determine, is God addressing a nation or is he addressing an individual? And he seems to go back and forth to let you know he's handling both. He's handling both, right? So we move into Daniel chapter 1. What we see is the opening verses address what? Yeah, so let's look at, I'm saying, calling this his story, Daniel's story, because it's an individual of him, the person, right? What we see happen to Daniel because of the consequences to Israel and their disobedience, what happens to him in chapter 1, verse 1? I say, say it again. Okay, so he gave Judah uh, and Jerusalem uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, correct? The king of Babylon. I'm not going to write all that, but that the inference is clear. Um, what do we know about Daniel specifically concerning what what is told us there? Who was Daniel in verse... Um, uh, three, yeah. Okay, he's he is among the sons of Israel. Okay, and that's in verse three. And he was among those nobles, basically, that were then brought into. That might be a good point to put up there. He he was among the nobles brought in. Okay? Just because it kind of gives you an idea of who he is as an individual, uh, that he had come from privilege, right? Uh, he had also come from probably very uh, skilled training, not just a, he wasn't just a plowman, he wasn't just, um, a craftsman. He was he, he he was among those of the elite who had been uh, raised in privilege, but also raised with a lot of education, right? And so he that's who Daniel was. That's his story. Now he's gone from being in the palace and and living among this privileged position. Now he's taken into captivity and he's now a slave. What a big difference in your life that would be from being one who is being waited upon to now what? Being a, that servant to others, right? And under duress, as a matter of fact. Now, let's talk about his 
his test, okay? Because we, we know that there's a test later that Daniel asks for. But we also see that Daniel himself is being tested, would you not say? So I think that there's kind of a, a secondary point in this. It says that he was among the sons of Israel. Uh, four, uh, when four, right? Four. Um, he was selected, right? For training. And the reason I lay this down as a point to what was going on concerning his test is because what then happens because he has been selected for this kind of training? What happens in his life? Okay, he is going, okay, he, and why is, but why is he renamed? What has he be, been brought into the palace for? What was going to happen to him for the next few years? Training. He went into, how long was that training? A three-year training. Yeah, <laughs> three-year tra training in Chaldean literature and so forth, right? All right, so that's in um, five, I think, right? Their language, their literature, literature and languages, and all the others, right? In order to do what? The, out the result of it at the end was that he would be able to do what? Okay. To serve the king, in order to, to that he would go into the service of the king. And uh, in that training time frame, he was brought in, you're going to be trained for three years, and now this is what we're going to do for you. To set you up so that you can train well and that the outcome will be positive, will be good, will be what we desire from you, what are we going to do for you, Daniel? They're going to feed him. They appoint them uh, food, right? A daily ration. Now, would you consider that actually a perk? you think about it you're now a slave in a foreign land that has just conquered you you've been brought to the castle and now you're being served the elite of all elites food you're not just being thrown out into the countryside to try to make make do right okay That's right. So we see, though, that he was appointed a daily ration. That, that is considered a perk. That's in 1.5. Um, the other thing that happens to him is what you said earlier about names. What happens to the names? Yeah, he's given a new name. And I'm not going to write all these down. But did anybody do in day five, she allowed you to go and do homework, right? Uh, I'll bet most of you went before day five. But tell me, because <laughs> I did too, it's okay. Tell me, um, what did you learn about the names of Daniel, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? What did their names mean in the Hebrew language? What were their Hebrew names? Daniel is God of 
Hananiah is. Okay. Michelle. Okay. Uh, well, we missed Azariah. Okay. Okay. So what you see is all four of them in their Hebrew names. What was what were their names associated with? With God, Yahweh, right? Their God, God Most High. And then when the new names were given, then we come to Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Which is really sad because I can pronounce all three of four of those very easily, but I cannot handle their Hebrew names, <laughs> which is, just tells you how pagan our little minds are. Okay, but, but um, Belshazzar, his name was very much like the name of the king at the end of the kingdom's reign. Did you notice? In a way, I'm wondering if there's some kind of a connection there that God also wants us to make. I haven't figured it out yet, but it just seems like the, the, there's like the beginning of the book and the end of the book, and the end of the book is the taking down of Belshazzar at the end of that uh, reign of Babylon. But his name, Belshazzar, means what? Okay, that's interesting. I don't have that one, but that's okay. And who was the king? I mean, the god. Who was the god? Bell, B-E-L. And any others? Yeah. May Bell protect his king or his life. I mean, there's a variety of things. This is one of the things I found was interesting is, is you go to more than one commentary and there's uh, slight variations of how they uh, give you for translation, but they are all very similar. And the, the similar quality is that all of them, when they got their names changed from their godly Hebrew names, which glorified God most high, what were they given? Pagan God names. What do you think was the design in that? Yes. Wouldn't you say, I mean, if every single time I spoke to you, I said, may, God, may Bell protect your life. <laughs> And I called you that by name instead, and instead, instead of by your name, your given name. So instead of Daniel, he's he's being called May Bell protect his life. <laughs> that's really that's really sad. I heard somebody in a commentary, I don't know, maybe he said uh, it was on uh, Abednego. He he was named after a fire god. You know what? That is another thing I saw. Now, interesting, because on the one hand, the fire god is talked about. He's also the, the god of writing and vegetation, which I thought was weird. Like, what a weird combination, right? And yet, he's also called the fire god. So I don't know if that has to do with pictorially how he's in imagery, if that's how he was he's visualized. And, th and through that fire god comes vegetation and... Um, literature, I, I don't know. I, I never could quite figure that out, but, and I never found a commentary to explain it. Did anybody get any more on that? Okay, it really doesn't matter. What we know is the one thing about you, you can know about these ancient gods is they transcended through the ages, and what they would do is as each generation or as each new kingdom came and rose and fall, they would uh, they would grab hold of a ki of a god or goddess. They would even sometimes change their name. You know, it might be 
Diana one time and then something else another, right? And so then because they would change things, for you and I, we get really confused, but um, they would hold on to certain qualities of each of them and then they would add to them according to their determined outcome or goal. So in other words, they designed their own gods for their own needs. Whatever agenda they were trying to push upon their people, they would give them a god for that particular part or quality of life. But what I think is interesting is when you think about the multitudes of gods, so they had a god for uh, literature, they had a god for um, vegetation, that's what this one god is, right? Bell, or no, not Bell, it's... um. Actually, this, the one that you're talking about was Nebo, Nebo or Nebu, right? Which uh, Abednego came from, correct? It's in honor of their god of writing and vegetation. But Nebu was the son of the god Bel, who Nebuchadnezzar was named after, Bel, Nebuchadnezzar. Neb's name comes from that mark. So that what will happen then is each of these gods have some kind of a quality. The name is added into their own personal name, and it gives them identification. Now, review. Con uh, covenant. When we study covenant, what do we learn about new names? That's right. Do you, you know, so when you go down, you walk down the aisle, and you get married, what does the wife do in order to enter into covenant with her new husband? She takes on his name. And now his name is her name, and those two are joined together, right? And therefore, there's a new identification of that individual with the covenant partner. And that is exactly what you're seeing in all of these situations. I think it's also interesting, and in just kind of looking at this subject on the whole is, isn't it interesting that we have a God that handles it all? They have a God for this and another God for this and another God. What if you missed giving your tribute that week to one of them and your water s supply stopped or something? You know what I mean? That's how it was with them. They had, you know, they had to go and give homage and give. As a matter of fact, when I was doing some of my other reading and research on these ancient gods and goddesses of, of this time, one of the things they talked about was how one of these kings, um, I think it was the Emil Marduk, who was called the evil Marduk, that at, at some point he became so, uh, uh, what is the right word, just focused on architecture and the rebuilding of things and he loved the antiquities and so he was rebuilding things and that's all he wanted to do. He had gone off to a certain area to do all this rebuilding of things and he wouldn't even go back to Babylon for these very big ceremonial things for these different gods like Bel, right, or others. And, and he got all the people really mad at him. So that's why he we, we think that the idea of evil Mar Marduk may have come into play, that they were angry, the people were angry. So it isn't just our generation where we have people calling people names and identifying them with <laughs> So evil Marduk, right, is because they were mad at him because he didn't come in to do what was expected as a politician of that day to come in and give homage to this particular um, god. All right, so interesting. Any other thoughts on some of that historical background? Yes. That the Babylonian 
to Shadrach, something that Meshach and Meshach do with Cain, Abednego with Abednego and Shadrach. Nebo to, yeah. Right, right. Uh, and it is one speculation, and it kind of, at least at this point, makes um, makes sense that he may have done that in order to honor them, to not affix to them that which the the pagan culture that they got pushed into identified with them. However, he still recognized that there was a changing of names for the purpose of, um, yeah, mainstreaming them into this culture, right? They they were being Babylonized, right, into the Babylonian culture and thinking, and they wanted to win them over. Yes. Um, your name was not part of the code, so the fact that their names were changed changed the code. Isn't that it's a very nice lead-in, a sig a segue, as they call it? Okay, so. How is all of this a test? How is this Daniel's test that he was among the sons of Israel that was selected for training? How is it that um, this three-year period of training up in language and arts and culture and uh, just, you know, just the mindset and the thinking and the experience of another culture, for some of us, that would be torture. But for some of us, it would be like, oh, that would be really cool. I would love three years of training somewhere where my whole life was just about me learning a language and a culture and another people. You know, missionaries go through this, right? When they get ready to go on the mission field, they get they get taught in the cultures and the ways. Um, so this was really a perk, right? It, it, he was appointed a daily ration and he was given a new name. But you're right. His new name, although they intended it to be something to bring Daniel into the Babylonian culture, Daniel didn't seem to be too concerned about that because he knew it was not his given name, right? But what was he concerned about? He was really concerned about, yeah, let's see, all names in Hebrew. God associated. I'm just writing this down. All new names. Okay, so that's something we learn about what happened to them. Their names give them a new identity from the perspective of the uh, the of what they were doing with them as they're through their training. But what we see here is Daniel had some previous training though, right? We looked at that. What did we see his previous training was? We looked in uh, Leviticus 11 and also Deuteronomy 6. So what do we know about previous training that helps us to understand why he seemed to be most concerned about the, uh, the food problem? What happened in Leviticus 11? What was it about? Making a distinction between the clean and the unclean, right? It was part of their, their, their food laws, right? Okay, that's in Leviticus 11. And we know that he was taught what? Okay, he was taught all the laws of the covenant and concerning food, what was he taught? Exactly what to eat and what not. Yeah, there you go. The distinction between 
Okay. Yeah, the clean and the unclean. So we can see then that for him this became an issue. Now, how do we, or what do we learn then just from this little part here about um, his his upbringing prior to coming to Babylon? Deuteronomy six kind of took us there. For those of you who did go and look at that. Yeah. So he was apparently taught, right? Well taught. Yes, in Hebrew uh, regulations. <laughs> okay, so that's out of Deuteronomy 6. All right, so this is what we know, Daniel's previous writing. And therefore, so, Daniel, therefore, he, he proposes a test, right? He all, not only is he tested, his test was, I'm going to give you all these perks, Daniel. You're going into captivity, now you're, you're being held, but you're going to be treated among those who are privileged again. And here you are in the midst of all this, and you're being given all these bennies, so to speak, as a, as a captured uh, uh uh, what do you call them? Um, not a refugee. What do you call them? Um, pardon? Prisoner of war. There you go. POW. Okay. So now he's in this POW camp, but he's being given the finest of the fine and well, being well trained, fed well. Uh, I'm sure he, gets, he got all the best of the clothing, all the best of everything, right? And so in that, then he, the, the question is, so what are you going to do with the situation that is given to you when it it's an obvious conflict with what you've been taught concerning your God. Mm -hmm. Yes. So even to this very day, the Hebrews are very diligent about training up their children. Isn't it interesting? That is the one thing that has lasted down through the, all the ages, is the idea that they understood their responsibility before God to teach their children uh, the, the law of God and the workings of God. I, I also find it very interesting. The one thing that, they, that they've held most fast to are those things which are more superficial than the heart of it. You know, there's another passage scripture talks about that he desires obedience over sacrifice. You know, God has uh, laws in place that he wants them to obey. Now, why do you think he gave them the law? What is the function and the purpose of all these rules that he gave to Israel as a nation? Okay, I like in particular the second part of that that has to do with them being a separated people, right? What was their design purpose as a nation? Why did God pick out a nation 
to put his name upon and to go into covenant with them alone, what was his design for them as a nation? There you go. The bottom line, you are to be my people, my holy nation. You are to glorify me in all the world. One of the, the repeated things in Ezekiel was when God was about to cast them off the land, the one repeated thing he said over and over was, what is he going to do one day? I will vindicate my holy name, my name which you defiled and defamed before the, the nations of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Not seed, one seed. Mm-hmm. That seed was Jesus, and it was coming through the Abrahamic line. Yes. So there was also there was also them being used by God as a tool to bring about the redemption of all humanity, right, for all peoples, right. So he, we see now Daniel's previous training helped him along, so that although he was being put to the test, now he proposes a test, right. He proposes a test. Now, why is that? What had he decided? What was it that the, the scripture tells us what were the, the working up to this test? He, had re, he refused to defile himself. It says that he made up his mind. Oh, here it is. He would not. <laughs> Thank you. I have so much on this chart, it's ridiculous. <laughs> he would not defile himself. I'm, I'm afraid we aren't going to hardly even get to touch on the next part of my chart over here. But that'll be okay. We'll get through this part. Okay, and so he, he proposes a test. And then what, what is the result of that test? Yeah, I mean, there are so many things about Daniel. As a matter of fact, one of your assignments this week was to go in and to make a list about Daniel and then to try to draw out of it the things that you learned about Daniel. Now, we call that part an analytical list. What happens is you start with facts. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, or this is who he is, this is who he is, this is who he is. Then they're saying, what do you learn about him? as you look at these things that he did and who he was. So analytically, what did you determine about the character and the attributes of who Daniel was? What did you learn? He was very smart. Obviously, he was cream of the crop. Okay? Okay, he was very diplomatic. This is, I, this is exactly what Kathy was saying, is that he didn't just come in and push his way in demand and just to say, I'm going on a hunger strike. He said, okay, now what's interesting is he proposes this twice. The first time he objects to the commander, correct? And, then it, and in the midst of that, what does it say about God? What did God do through the commander for Daniel? Yes, he granted favor and compassion in the heart of that commander. He had favor and compassion for Daniel. And yet when Daniel asked him about this, can I not eat this food? 
What did the commander say? Yeah, right. <laughs> I really don't want to die today, so no, exactly. So apparently then uh, maybe some time went, a day or so, or who knows how long. It doesn't tell us. But then the next part, it goes immediately into a man called the overseer, right? And the overseer now, who has been put in charge of Daniel and his friends, who, by the way, must obviously know that the commander has both compassion and um, favor toward Daniel and his friends, right? And now this, this overseer, he comes to him and he proposes this secondary proposal, right? So what does that tell you about Daniel? Analytically, what is, what is going on with him as a man? He's persistent. He's, he's flexible. He's, he's willing to, to, to try to figure a new, so he's diplomatic, right? He doesn't just try to shove it down the throats of his oppressors, right? He does recognize what? He recognizes his position under them, right? It's not even a chain of command. I mean, he is literally at their mercy, and he recognizes that. And yet, in his personality, what you see come forth is courage, determination. Why has he got so much courage? Why does he have so much determination? Well, going back and looking at the Leviticus and the Deuteronomy verses that Kay took us for more historical context to this shows us what about his upbringing? That he was taught in a righteous way. He was a, he was a righteous man and he greatly desired. So what does this tell you about our, his personal relationship with God Almighty? Yes, he was really committed to being obedient to God, wasn't he? So even though he was in a real difficult situation, and he knew what he was not in control of this, right? So what does this tell you when he went back and proposed this um, second test? What, what is his relationship between him and God in this? Wow, that's, a, that's an act of trust. That what, trusting what? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he literally tells him that he wants them to have a test, and he says, and then you can examine us at the end of all this, right? You can look at us and tell us your evaluation at the end. Now, what happened at the end? They looked back. Interesting withheld the very best of the best food, the stuff that should have been, you know, the cream of the crop for food and for nutrition and for making them, quote, fat. I think that was interesting. I'm like, oh, boy, if we only had that problem today, <laughs> try to make us fat. We're all working on staying skinny, right, <laughs> because we eat too much. But Daniel needed to be fattened up. He was a young boy who probably was lanky at that point, right? And so... What happened at the end? He was fatter. That was a positive. He was fatter at the end of it. He, he looked, his appearance was better. And so the end of that, they don't tell you, but what does that indicate to you is going to happen from that point forward concerning his food? He would be able to continue to eat the way that he knew would keep him undefiled before God. Now, this is really cool. 
what is the problem with the food? What did you learn in your commentary work on day five about this dietary food of the king? Right. Okay. Concerning what the kings did eat, what do you know? What did you learn? Exactly. One of the biggest issues was it had been defiled because of the of the fact that he had been offered up to their false gods first. And therefore, because it was uh, presented unto the god of whatever, Baal or or one of those, that therefore the food itself was actually defiled in that it had, had been blessed by their God, okay? So the food did not, basically did not conform to, which one of you told me, um, uh, to the requirements of the Mosaic Law, right? I, oh, it was Kristen, sorry. <laughs> and now we also know that it was probably um, blessed by pagan worship system, right? So that was not good. Royal food was routinely sacrificed and offered to pagan gods. And therefore, let someone look up this verse for me. Uh, Exodus 34:15. I just want to let you see it in the text where this is actually addressed by God earlier when he's giving them the law concerning foods and how, what they are to eat and what not to eat. Who's got that for me when you get there? 34:15 of Exodus. Who wants to read? Thank you, Kathy. Okay. Okay. So he's basically telling them, do not do this. Do not entangle yourself with the people of these pagan worship systems, right? It's like when God, in Deuteronomy early on, God says to them as they're entering into the land, do not let your sons marry their daughters, nor your daughters marry their sons, least their pagan worships bring you down. And when they bring you down, it'll make you sin. And when you go into sin, he says, and at that point, what's, what am I going to have to do to you? Remove you off the land. Right? So here he says in this verse, he said, amongst all those problems that can happen is least you go into a meal with one of them and you eat of their food that has been sacrificed to their idols. And by which, what would happen? According to Leviticus, defilement. And so God is saying, be ye separate. So why does God give Israel, the nation, these laws that they would be a consecrated people unto God, a holy nation, a people who who reflect who God is to the world around them. And when they get entangled with the world, that becomes diminished. And what Israel did eventually was got to the point where God spoke about their abominations before him and how evil they had uh, become before the Lord. And so they had totally and utterly destroyed their testimony that they were supposed to be giving about who God of Israel was. And therefore, at the end, Ezekiel tells us, God says, one day I'm going to vindicate my holy name. So th this was a big problem. So this is his test. This is what the end of it. God's provision was, at the end, he, he was better in appearance
And also, therefore, then also, because he had found a way to honor God, God was doing what for him? He was making a provision. And when God did this, the result was he not only was better in appearance, but also God did what for them? So, so he gave them knowledge, intelligence, intelligence and this is verse, uh, or chapter 1, verse what? 17. 17, okay. And better was one that they were better in appearance. Um, well, that's 20, uh, 15. Thank you. Okay, I found it. <laughs> okay, what I thought was interesting, the test was for 10 days, right? I don't know if there's a connection in this because I didn't see anything in commentaries, but in verse 20, what does it say? When tested by the kings, what? They were found to be 10 times better. Did anybody else make that connection between 10 days of testing and now they're 10 times better? I just thought, I wonder if there's something there. I don't know, but I just thought it was very interesting. They were found 10 times better. And the final result was they entered the king's service. Now, I'm going to show you something else that I think is so cool about this whole story. Entered the king's service. See, that was 120. That was 121, I think. Something like that. Or 19? Something like that. So, 19? Okay. I thought I, thought I might have got that wrong when I did it. Okay. All right, that tells you how many times I've read it, right? <laughs> In Deuteronomy 29.9, it says, So keep the words of his covenant to do them. This was back into the in the Deuteronomy portion of this. He says, Keep the words of this covenant to do them that you may prosper in all that you do. But let me tell you something. Did you notice that the text switches the identification of Daniel and his friends? I'm going to write it over here. The first time they're introduced, they're called, they were among the sons of Israel, correct? That's in verse uh, 4. And then later, how are they called? Now they're called among, among them, them who? Israel. They were from the sons of Judah. Now, this is really cool. I was listening to a teaching by a Hebrew pastor who's a Christian, and he was talking about the, the play on words here and how things change. And he says, you know, God never makes a move from one identifying marker to another without having a design purpose. I mean, it's, it's deliberate. It is not just no big deal, we're just going to give you, uh, you know, another identifying marker. Let me tell you about this name, Judah. I'm not going to write it down because our time is getting short. But Judah, it, by definition, it's number uh, 3063. It means praised, just in its most general term. But when you go into the etymology of it and you learn a little bit more, uh, and this pastor was actually even adding into this for me, but in the theological workbook of the Old Testament, it, it says that, Judah, or Judah, this proper noun is used of persons and or of territory, and it means to give thanks 
to laud or to praise. And according to this Hebrew pastor I listened to, he says, it is understood by the Jewish mind to throw praise. Now think about it. Okay. He says that the term is not just meaning to give thanks or to give praise, but in the Hebrew mind of the way they think of this, it's to throw praise, right? So think about this in the context of everything that we just saw. He first was among the sons of Israel, but now he's of the sons of Judah. Uh, hold on. Six makes sense. Verse six. So did you notice the switch? So in chapter 1, verse 4 of Daniel, it says sons of Israel. Then in verse 6, it says sons of Judah. Among them, those sons of Israel were sons of Judah. And then they distinguished the four names of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't say it that way, but that's my word. <laughs> okay, those four, Daniel and his three friends, right? And now they switched the name to be sons of Judah. Now, in the Hebrew reading of this, they would receive this as being a part of a co the corporate nation, right? Now to being Judah, who are those who throw praise. Who do you think they throw praise to? God. Isn't that interesting? When you think about Daniel's storyline in this in this account, it shows a man who is by force put into servitude under a foreign nation with pagan gods. He finds a way to uh, diplomatically and with great poise work it out so that he could not defile himself before his God. And by doing that, what is its function? He throws praise to God. Isn't that... Yes, yes. The whole point to God's nation, Israel, in cutting covenant with them was that that nation would be a praise of who he is to the whole world, to all the nations around them. They were to bring praise and glory and honor to God by their, their righteous behavior, by their righteous living, and by, by submitting themselves to the God most high. Now, we didn't even get into the Lord. I have a whole bunch on that. Maybe I can hit a couple points. We've got about 10 minutes. He does. And I think it's fantastic that he literally, within the written words of this, implied, that's what I'm showing you guys. I'm showing you that even though Daniel was a part of a nation that had fallen away from me, when he as an individual goes into his captivity, what do I do? What did God do? He blessed him for his obedience. So there's a protection and a provision for the individual of that nation, just as there is for us today in our relationship with God. <laughs> we go to vegetables and water, <laughs> which is what I'm on right now. Exactly, I know, and I'm hungry. <laughs> but do I look fatter? <laughs> I hope not. I hope fatter means something else. And you know what, I didn't even do a word study on that. I wonder if fatter means something else in the original language. It could have to do with just the healthiness of a person, potentially. Refers to Daniel. He called him a man 
Mm -hmm. Yes, later we're going to see that. A man of high esteem. So that's exactly right. And actually, I like that you bring that up because that is exactly what we're seeing here with Daniel. When you did all your character analysis of what was going on with Daniel, who is Daniel? He's a man of high esteem. He's a man of, of dignity. He's a man of that's faithful to his God. He's a man who was determined not to defile himself. Now, he wasn't really in a place or a position that he, he could make that decision for himself, was he? But what happened when he determined not to defile himself? What did God do? He swung open the doors of opportunity for him. And he, gave, he caused the commander, who apparently had an influence upon the overseer, to give compassion and understanding toward Daniel and his situation. And it seems to me through the way that they uh, they laid out this storyline, the commander would have done it for him, but he was worried about his life. And so when you think about Daniel's test, okay, then let's try a test. What do you think that was in, in Daniel's relationship with that commander? What was he showing the commander by the way he handled that? Yeah, I'm going to prove that you're not going to get in trouble, and I'm also concerned about you and your life. I don't want you to suffer either, so let's do a test, and let's do it for a limited amount of time, Let, and, let's, and, and if after 10 days there's not improvement, if you see us looking worse, then we'll submit. But Daniel, in that proved his his God faithful. He also, God blessed him because of his commitment and faithfulness. What? Wow, what a great thing for all of us to learn. Think about our own lives and the things that we, without duress, we're not under the thumb of a slave master, right? And yet, what do we often do when it comes to the world and the, and the, the pressures of conforming to big compromises. So here we learn a man who would not compromise. So these are all points. Now, Kay has said what you're going to be doing now from this point forward is you're going to begin your list on Daniel and a list on God. You're going to look at it from two perspectives. Number one will be a list that are pure facts, straight from the text to your paper with your scripture reference. This is what Daniel did. This is where he was. This is what happened to him. This is, you know, these are the facts, right? Then on the other side of it, I want you to say, what quality or characteristic are you learning about Daniel that might benefit you to embrace for your own life? Are you faithful? Are you fully committed to God? Are you um, uh, persistent in doing righteousness rather than unrighteousness? Right? Okay. Now, we've got just a couple of minutes. I do want to go back and look about the Lord. Now, what did we see about the Lord in this text? Give me some of the, either the verbs or the adjectives concerning God that you saw in chapter 1. Okay, the Lord gave. Okay, so the, and that's in 1, 2, and it goes on to say, he gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that word there, Lord, the Lord, is number 136. Did anybody look that up? 
anybody in here do a word study? I know she told you, you know, you, she didn't ask you to do that. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to stress it again. Anytime you see God's name mentioned, you should always look it up in a word study, even if it's not asked of you in the homework. Because his names that are given in each um, account have, will convey to you the message that God is trying to impress upon you about himself. So if you want to understand best how and what it is that God wants you to know about who God is, who the Lord is, you need to do your word studies, okay? And it does take a few extra minutes, I get it, but just take the time. This is number 136. It's the word Adonai. Um, it's Often it's spoken in place of Yahweh. just so you know that, because it's con it, it often, the reason they do that is because it's, it's reverential. So it's a, a reverential way, okay? Now, what does it convey about God? How is he described through the word that he is Lord? Uh, he is Master. He's also the true God with focus on authority. Or ruling, basically. Majesty of rulership. Okay, now, boy, what do you think? What kind of insights does that add to your understanding of the story that we just saw in Daniel 1 so far? Okay, the very first line in, in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says that the Lord gave who? Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Why did he do that according to what you looked at in those three sieges? What had Jehoiakim done? What was his verdict? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I think it was uh, Jeremiah 25, right? Okay, so here we see the first use of the word Lord there. Then, then it goes on to say other things about the Lord. I guess I should make these a little different so that they don't get confused, right? Okay, so that was the Lord gave Jehoiakim. He goes on to say again about the Lord in verse 2, what? Uh, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. I probably spelled that wrong, but you get the message. <laughs> okay, he gave Jerusalem. Also, this is an important point to be made where it speaks of him giving Jerusalem over because what is Jerusalem in God's eyes? It is the apple of his eye. It's his holy city. It's the name which bears his temple. It's the, it's the city that bears his name, right? And as a matter of fact, this is one of the reasons why God speaks in Ezekiel about him having to come back one day and, and uh, vindicate his holy name, which they have profaned was because of the fact that he allowed his temple and his holy city to fall into enemy hand. And in that storyline with um, 
Ezekiel, I think it's in verse 10, it talks about the Shekinah glory. And what happens with the Shekinah glory before it falls into the hands of the enemies? He departs. He leaves his temple and his city. And so this is, this is a disreputable thing that has happened to the Lord's name in the eyes of people. Can you make a, some kind of a um, analogy or, an, or something that's kind of similar to that in, in what we do today? I mean, because it's very easy to say, well, that's what they did. But what about us? What happens when a Christian particularly if you have a, a reputation or you're maybe a large ministry or you're a well-known pastor, what happens when you as a pastor or a, or a spiritual leader commit acts of abominations and evil and sin before the Lord? What does the world do? Are they watching? What are they waiting for, for most of us Christians to do? To fall over on our face. They are watching and waiting for the day when you trip up. All you And believe me, you only have to say one bad word, right? Zip up, right? Or all you have to do is fall into temptation one time. And, and what happens to God's name? How, when you hear the reports on the news about these ministers and pastors, who actually gets the black eye? God does. This is what's going on in this nation at this time. God has been given a great big fat black eye as far as the world is concerned. Now, God will vindicate his holy name because is it God that failed? No, it was God's people, right? It was the nation that failed him. Now, among, um, oops, right here. So we see he also gave Jerusalem, which tells you something also about the Lord. What does it tell you then about the Lord that he's willing to give up Jerusalem? to the enemies, and to give up his king, his rulers of his nation. Why did he do it? Because they had what? They sinned. So what does that tell you about God? Okay, he follows through with his promises, blessings and cursings. Okay, so God says and he will do. What else? What else did you learn about God from this? Okay, so he's sovereign to do what he said, right? If he tells you, I'm going to do this, you can count on God's going to be able to do this. Okay. There you go. Why do you think he's dead serious? What does this tell you about his attitude towards sin? Yes. Do you remember in doing your overview when you hit chapter 9 of Daniel and Daniel's in prayer? And what is he? What is the prayer con, be conveying at that point? What is he saying in prayer? Oh, big time! The sins that we have committed, the, the wrong that we have done, the, and he—he's a total bearing of his soul and saying, and, "And Father, your holy name, right, was brought down because of our deeds." And so, what this shows us when we look at the fact that the God that God was willing to give Jehoiakim, the Lord was giving to, willing to give up Jerusalem, is that he hates sin enough that he will allow judgment to come upon those who won't obey, that he brings judgment on those who don't submit to understanding that he's a holy God and you must be holy. Do you remember one of the verses we looked at? It said, um, 
ooh, I can't remember where, but one of the verses in there, I think it might have been in Leviticus. It was in Leviticus where it says, why are you to discern between the clean and the unclean? I am the Lord your God. I am a holy God. Therefore, what? Be ye holy. Why? Because you're representing me. If you bear my name, Katie is a Christian, and you walk in the world of filth, they should be seeing a shining light on a hill. You shouldn't be blending in with the world. Okay, so something we learn about who our God is, yes? Yes, 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 always. He's looking for him. Who, I think it's in a Chronicles. It says, As the Lord, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the face of the earth, looking for him whose heart he might fully support. He desires to support us. And, he, and I think it's interesting, the intimacy of God. On the one hand, he's overseeing a nation who bears his name, but then individually he comes down into the life of Daniel, an individual, and says, you matter. And I will deal fairly with you even though I'm still judging the nation that you are out of. So what does that tell us about the end time events that are coming ahead? We don't need to fear. That, you know, there, there may be some hard things that will come. We might get taken up into it or captured up into it if we're not gone. I think we're gone, but that's just my opinion. However, but even if we're not, it's just like what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says. Even though I may not be saved out of that fire, what? I will not bow. There is one more title for I want to do right, and then I'm going to close this up very quickly, and that's the word God, because God comes up in verse 9. And that, name, that one is number 430, and it's um, Elohim. Okay, the name Elohim. It denotes God as creator. That's the first thing. Now, I think this is important in particular in this context because why? If he's the creator, who is the, who is the creator of? Everything. Us, everything. And concerning Israel, what is he the creator of? Israel, who the nation, right? Remember, one of the things that we uh, have studied in years past um, as a group is that how God called Abraham out of a land of the Chaldeans, but he also had promised it all the way back in the Garden of Eden that he was going to bring a seed. And one day he promised that same seed to that man Abraham, who he called out of, a, out of the land of the Chaldeans, right, to become Israel, the nation through whom God said, I want you to glorify my name in all the earth. And now you failed me, so now I'm going to discipline you, but I'm still going to work through people like Daniel and his three friends. Even in the midst of my judgment, I will still be glorified. But he is God creator, so he's called God creator. Um, he is also the, the true God. Under that title, he is the supreme God. I'd like you guys to do your word studies on this for yourself, if you can. But it also, creative, the supreme God, the true God, the creator God, um, it, it's the God of might. 
um, and it, it shows him sovereign authority. over all he created. Remember, the one who creates it gets to name it, right? It's like, I always think of that Walt Disney of um, Tarzan when they're going to name Tarzan. And he says, I'm going to call him Tarzan. And the little friend says back, he says, okay, it's your baby. (laughs) It's like, I don't like that name, but okay, you get to name it, right? Well, God is the sovereign authority because he is the creator. So he gets to call the shots. And so what's interesting in the Hebrew is, let me read this and this will be our closing. In verse 2 where it calls him Adonai and in verse 9 and 17 it calls him Elohim. These two names for God are very similar and are often used in companionship in order to more fully identify or strengthen the characteristics that they convey in the context. Okay, So showing him as the creator but also showing him as the sovereign authority, right? Example, for instance, in Deuteronomy 8.11, it says, Be careful not to forget Adonai your Elohim, the Lord your God, by not obeying his commands, rulings, and regulations that I am giving you today. So back in Deuteronomy, when the law was given, he called himself Adonai your Elohim. And he unites those two to strengthen the idea of who Yahweh was, that he is the supreme authority. Now, what do we know about the title God Most High? It conveys his sovereignty. So again, right away, therefore, in Daniel chapter 1, the very first thing God does is, is identify the quality that he wants us to understand most clearly about him in this book. And that is that he is the sovereign God, the creator God, the ruler God. And he does that by the names that he tells us he is called by in those chapters. We don't see it so clearly in the English. We have to go to the the, stu- the word studies to get that fully developed. Used together, they support or strengthen the message of God creator as the sovereign authority over all he created. All right, amen. Good job. <laughs>